Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Should have said earlier. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she/her. You know, if I don't, if I don't get to talk first, I, it's like I forget. So think what you will about me for having admitted that. But no bullshit, right? <clears throat> um, I am uh, reading our gospel reading for tonight. So a couple of just preliminary words about that. Just a couple notes about it. Um, for one thing, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is not a season that some in this space grew up with. So let me just say a word about that liturgical season. Advent um, is the four Sundays preceding Christmas and just that whole long season of preparation for the Christmas holy day. It's a somber and serious season. It's not exactly what people expect when they come to church necessarily during sort of what we think of as Christmas time. I mean, according to the consumer capitalist materialist schedule of buying things, like Marilyn said. Uh, But Advent is a time when we're meant to be preparing ourselves. It's like the church of old is asking us every year again, have you really, really thought about what it means to invite Jesus into the world? Like, I mean, have you really considered the consequences of welcoming this child again into your hearts and into this world. It's like the readying of our hearts for celebrating Christmas. And I I liken it to, we're sort of being called on in the season of Advent to eat our vegetables before we get to dessert. So it's also time in the liturgical calendar uh, every year that we make a shift in the primary readings for worship, usually a gospel reading. So for a whole year just past, ending last Sunday, we have let Mark's gospel account fund all of our memories and all of our imagination about Jesus. But now we are switching over. We're changing to the next gospel in line, which is Luke. And we'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke whenever we read the Gospel in seasons to come over the whole next year until next Advent. And as is traditional in the Advent season, we're going to start in the Gospel of Luke at almost the very end of the Gospel, because that's just how this season goes. And so here it is, our Gospel reading for tonight from Luke 21, 25 through 38. It is the Brussels sprouts of Advent readings I hope you can digest it. (laughs) Jesus said, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Humanity coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. 
Look at all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the reign of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Humanity. Every day, he was teaching in the temple, and at night, he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called, and all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the tradition of Advent, which always starts at the end of the gospel and at the end of the world as we know it, let's start tonight at the end of the reading. Luke reports that during the last week of Jesus' life, those contentious days he spent in Jerusalem, the center of power for religious and regional imperial authority, he went every day to the temple to teach. Although I think there's a case to be made that teach is rather a tame verb for what he was actually doing. I picture him more like a street preacher on any corner in any city, Austin, wearing a sandwich board over his shoulders that says, the end is nigh in dripping red letters ringing a bell and calling people to true religion. He's ranting, he's raving, his feet are bare, his hair and beard look like he spent the night on the ground under a tree in a public park, hiding from the authorities, which he did every night, going out to spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called, Luke says, the Mount of Olives is part of a little ridge just east of Old Jerusalem with the Garden of Gethsemane at its base. You could walk there from the temple. So he's um, urban camping by night, putting on a show in the temple by day. The leisurely walkabout through the Galilean countryside, blessing strangers with healing and health, enjoying long dinners at the homes of friends, the sensuous oiling of his coiled hair, the perfumed pedicures for his tired, beautiful feet. (laughs) Now that's all over. It's a whole new mode, a whole new message from Apocalypse Now, Jesus. It's loud. And to be honest, he kind of stinks. Every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called. And here's the part that grabs me, the very next verse. And all the people 
would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. I have to ask, why? (laughs) Why did all the people get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple? When I lived in Austin, walking the drag on my lunch break, I would cross to the other side of Guadalupe to keep from encountering the guy wearing plywood that proclaimed, New World Odor, in all caps, dripping red. It was the Bush years, Bush the first, the one who campaigned on a promise of a new world order. And our local lunatic didn't care much for it or for him, apparently. And whether or not I agreed with him, I just didn't want to get caught in conversation with him. I didn't want my imagination or my lunch hour captured by his nightmares of a frightening future where God topples empires and makes fools of us all. And also, true to his sign, new world odor, he kind of stank. Best to steer clear. But Luke says all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to Jesus in the temple. Like, before they went to work. Like before they started their back-breaking day trying to earn enough wages to satisfy the emperor's taxation and still put food on their family table, what do you care about enough that you would get up earlier than you have to before your work day starts to hear more about it? What do I? Maybe that's a difference worth noting that for Jesus' Jerusalem audience, the continuation of the status quo meant deeper poverty, broader inequality, more pain, fewer prospects. For me, in Austin, even in the early 90s, the status quo meant that if I kept studying, kept working, kept trying, the capitalist system would eventually reward me by paying interest on the privilege I started with. Now, here is the continuity between the Jesus of the pastoral Galilean ministry and the Jesus of the prophetic Jerusalem hollering. Wherever Jesus goes, wrapped in a cloud of God's reign, of God getting everything God wants, Jesus is a disruptor. Hell, Jesus is a disruption He does not leave things the way he finds them. He finds sickness, he leaves health. He finds isolation, he leaves reconciliation. He finds shame or shaming, he leaves mercy and dignity. He finds prejudice or privilege or power. He leaves a devastating leveling, a bulldozing of mountains to fill in the valleys until pride is laid low and privilege is buried. His arrival in your town or your synagogue or your place of exile just outside of town, his arrival in your life and in your religion and in your heart, it shreds what you thought you knew for sure and then uses it for compost to cover up the tiniest little seed of God's rain so that it can grow and grow and grow into an outsized shrub that houses birds from every nation, loud and squawking, shitting on your status quo for the rest of forever. Jesus is a disruption. And so he says on the first Sunday of Advent, there in the temple, You're going to want to expect more of the same from the son of humanity. 
I mean, it's just been drips and drabs up to now, hyper-local repair of super-specific brokenness, one precious human life saved at a time. But a day is surely coming when God will take the whole of history in God's strong arm and mighty hand and wrench it right round, cracking its spine and straightening its crookedness, a cosmic chiropractic adjustment until every piece of the universe once again aligns with God's own logic, God's own schematic for how the whole thing is supposed to work together, function together, sing and play and praise together. No more emperors on your necks. No more VRPs with their codified guilt. Just God's own redemption. Your liberation. A universal disruption of what has always been. Wait for it, Jesus says. You won't have to wait too long. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. Here is Jesus describing his own understanding that his role is about to shift significantly. His coming to dwell among us as an infant, as a singular human life beautifully lived, is itself the tiniest of all the seeds buried in the soil of a tiny conquered nation state so negligible the empire barely knows its name or his someone christ king of the jews snarls Pilate in jesus christ superstar because really he is so very small so terribly provincial, tending towards zero in the calculus of power. And so what if he does a few miracles, casts out a few demons, inspires a few dozen followers? But Jesus, in the temple, insists that next time, and there will be a next time, it'll be different. The next time he comes the nations will know his name and the universe will yield to his saving grace. And he signals the totality of it all by connecting it to the heavens and the earth and the disruption of nature. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And in, in my mind's ear now, he sounds like Greta Thunberg and the rest of the protesters outside the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow last month, pointing to the skies, the earth, the seas, shouting insistently that we can't go on this way, that the center does not hold, that we have exploited every last drop from this precious planet and are in need of repentance to keep it from self-destructing under our insatiable appetites. Signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth distressed among nations confused by the roaring of the seas and its waves. Yes, we have that. Fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Yes, we have that. Eco-anxiety, to say the least. And eco-hopelessness 
a growing dread among younger generations of what previous generations have wrought, and a sure knowledge that all our biodegradable straws and recycle bins and hybrid cars are not going to heal what ails our home. Could the Jesus of first century Palestine have known about that? Could the melting ice caps and rising sea levels be signs of the second coming, the disruption of history that God has promised? I mean, that's one way we could go. But then what would we have? <laughs> We'd have another loud preacher presenting a timeline she's altogether unsure of. On other days, in other rants, Jesus warned his followers not to try and figure it out on a calendar, just to stay alert and live the kind of lives that will make God's next interruption of history good news for you. Maybe, maybe it's less a prediction, less a timetable mapped out by Jesus for the end of the world as we know it, and, and more, more this... Jesus' sure sense and insistence that it is all connected, that we're all connected. The seas and the trees and the star that is our sun and all the other stars, ourselves and our global neighbors, the ground we're made of and the ground that yields our food, all of it concatenated, all of it bound up together so that the death of one star reverberates in the grieving gravitational shifts of everything around it so that the extinction of one species resounds through its ecosystem as the heartache of real loss, so that the forfeiture of one human life to famine or force or violence or virus or crime or cancer or despair is a needle scratch in the record of the universal song, the screech of a broken string in the cosmic symphony, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, the powers of the heavens shaken. Yes, yes, we have all that. And maybe this is Jesus saying, he said, stand up. Raise your heads. Get your heads out of your individualistic asses. Stop imagining redemption as something each person needs and start understanding that this whole project, this whole creation is in need of renovation, that God has the power and the intention to do it, and that what I've been doing here, Jesus says, was really never about you. It was always about y'all. And it was always about all y'all. And all y'all includes everything, every star, every atom in the heavens and on the earth, including you, but also including... Have you seen those trees over there, Jesus says? Have you been out to the park lately, to the Mount of Olives, the garden at its base where the trees, the trees are pumping out oxygen to fill your lungs, where the leaves whisper to the moon all night long. 
where the entwined roots make ridges in the earth where a body can burrow down for sheltered sleep, roots that pass along water and food from tree to tree, from well-nourished to malnourished so that all may thrive, where each tree knows what to do and when to do it. Have you, have you seen those trees? You should really take a look, Jesus says, at the trees. And, and learn their song. Learn their seasons. Learn from them what to do next. Because the trees know, Jesus says. And it's all connected. Sun and moon, stars and sea, you and the fig tree and all the other trees together comprising the world, the cosmos, that God still loves. Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R, in case you want to look it up or you think I'm making a junior high joke, was an early 20th century Jewish philosopher who left Austria when Hitler came to power. He settled in Jerusalem in 1938 and eventually became the predominant Israeli philosopher of the 20th century. Professor Buber knew in his bones what Jesus knew, that everything is connected, that our very existence is dialogical, that the human comes into being in relationship. I am because you know that I am. Because you see and speak to me as thou, as one infused with God's own being. And you are, you are because to me, you are thou seen and known so that you can be too. And in this way, we are intrinsically bound up with each other, a reciprocal I, thou, I, thou, that has to be tended with care over time. Otherwise, Professor Buber said, he knew, Without care and mutuality, the human being outside myself becomes not thou, but it, an object to be ignored or observed or used or abused or even exterminated, Holocaust being the logical extension of the I-it mentality just down the road a ways from crossing the street to avoid a conversation with someone you really don't want to know. And here now is the surprising place that Buber takes us with such care in his life's work. The I-thou versus I-it disposition extends not only to our fellow human beings, but to every constitutive part of God's good creation. Most famously, Mr. Buber insisted that the pinnacle of human being is to achieve the I-thou with trees, to enter into communion with their bark and branches, 
to find one's own existence tethered to the tree's bud and blossom. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm not really much of a nature lover. I love air conditioning. <laughs> and I grew up in dry land cotton farming territory where farmers squeezed every drop of nitrogen out of the dirt for their cash crop and then poured on more nitrogen in the form of caustic chemical fertilizer. It's a utilitarian view of the Earth's production capacity, the soil as it. The Ogallala Aquifer underground that could be pumped up to water the soil as it. The cotton itself, acres and acres of it. Something to be exchanged for mortgages and cars and groceries. More it's. As such, I did not inherit much of a thou outlook for the planet. But I hear Jesus ranting about the sun and the sea and the trees in the temple. And I see the poor and dispossessed and exhausted people that kept getting up at O Dark 30 to go hear him some more. And I listen to the Climate Change Summit and John Kerry insisting that we've gotten all we can get out of China this time and every other nation on earth insisting they've gotten all they can get out of the U.S. this time. And I hear the fear and foreboding of the poor and dispossessed people in developing nations under serious threat from smoky skies and rising seas and climbing temperatures and a string of serious storms, the likes of which humanity has never endured and there's a fox on the football field because its own territory has been encroached, eliminated by our insatiable hungers. And I know that I can't fix any of that. But God can. And in the meantime, Jesus is telling me, look up, stand up, wake up. Find a tree, figure it out. Look to the fig tree and become more of yourself. The more I, the more thou. The more thou, the more I. Do it, he says, in time for the soon coming reign of God. You won't have to wait too long. And every day he was teaching in the temple. And at night, he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, Go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, 
will continually send you thanks. Peace.